Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. You better, you better, you bet that you're listening to the Skip to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends in the Who for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Welcome to the podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, We'll give you a raw bone podcast. It is the only wicked good podcast out there, and it is the people's podcast. It's the major league of professional wrestling podcast. Now, before we get rolling with part two with Jace Nakarado, I want to encourage everyone to join our Facebook page. If you enjoy this podcast, you will enjoy the page. I made a list of the 10 best Super Bowl winning teams of all time. You want to look at that? Just sign up for Facebook. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, search John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs in the Avatar. And yeah, coming up is part two of my conversation with Jace Nakarada, which is wicked good. We finished talking about Clash of the Champions 14, and then we move on to some more interesting stuff. So have a great listen. Listen, everyone have a safe and happy Super Bowl Sunday. Please don't go to a big Super Bowl party. I am watching with three other people this year, and that's it. So please scale back and be safe. Enjoy the game and enjoy the podcast. Here we go. Now, next match is Ranger Ross against El Cubano. Uh. (laughs) Ranger Ross. I mean, I understand why they're putting him on the show. He was a legit U.S. Army Ranger. But, Jace, if, you, if you're like me, it felt like they were exploiting the guy a little bit. This was the pander match. Like, and you know what? I, I completely understand with everything going on and, you know, given Dusty's grand speech moments before, you have to kind of follow it up as well. And no disrespect to Ranger Ross. Well, maybe a little bit with that whole stupid The Pearl thing from the year before, feigning <laughs> that he was the great Muda. Ridiculous. This was the pander match. To be brutally honest, this match probably shouldn't have taken place in the show because of <laughs> just the people in it, just the work rate in general. And it was the pan match. I, again, looking at it from a different perspective, I'm trying to you know, get a better worldview of things as they were and as they are now and how I feel about these kind of things. I'm not an excessively patriotist um, kind of guy and you know I, I get where it has its place and everything but my eyes just kind of rolled when I saw this match come on and nothing against Ranger Ross noted bank robber I think did he rob a bank I thought something like that happened I don't want to speak out of turn I Mr. Ross I apologize well no he's I don't know if he passed away anyways uh, I don't um, know either <laughs> I know he was at Cauliflower Alley Club a couple of years ago my sincerest apologies to the Ross family yeah it was the pander match. That's all I can say. Ranger Ross. I've met Ranger Ross. He is one of the nicest guys I have ever met. I mean, definitely in the top five in the wrestling business for sure. Just a great guy. And yeah, he was arrested for armed robbery. <laughs> he would <laughs> apparently allegedly would go into banks, rob the place, you know, at gunpoint and then take off on a Honda motorcycle. And I'm not sure what the outcome of that case is, but usually if the FBI makes an arrest on something like that, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that as well, I wonder who the more successful robber was, Jeff Gaylord or Ranger Ross? Oh, I'll bet anything it's Ranger Ross. I mean, I don't mean to bag on Jeff Jeff Gaylord every time his name comes up. I mentioned that Ranger Ross is one of the, the nicest guys. Jeff Gaylord is the, one of the dumbest guys I've ever met in any walk of life. I'm sure that he got a little bit scared when somebody, uh, one of the clerks came out with a Coke bottle and tried to throw it at him as well. So that's <laughs> probably when he dropped the uh, the loot and tried to run. Oh, boy. <laughs> these, these crazy wrestlers. Anyway, uh-huh. next match is Arn Anderson and Barry Windham against Mark and Chris Youngblood. My opinion is that Arn and Barry are perhaps the most underrated tag team. I want to say of all time, but they have become criminally underrated. Maybe it's because they weren't together as long as you'd like, but when they were together, like, I mean, we, we know we have two outstanding ring technicians in there. Number one, but number two, 
I thought they had great chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Just seeing this kind of for the first time with the, you know, R and BA combination. I really like it. And I'm really interested to kind of see more stuff from them as well from this time period. Yeah. Barry, since he had, well, actually since he had left WCW in early 1989, I felt had been in kind of a slump. He was, you know, no big deal in the WWF. Then when he returned to WCW right around, it was May 1990, they agreed to let him come back. It, it felt like something was missing and that something missing was coming back. It didn't make it all the way back, but it felt like Barry was slowly but surely returning to his peak form. Oh, can't wait to uh, see more of that. And I'll take your word for it. Absolutely. All right. This was another match I felt that belonged on WCW Saturday night. I, I mean, the young bloods, they, they, everyone knew who was going to win. The young bloods were a good team, but they just weren't stars like Barry and Arn. I know clashes can't be pay-per-views, but you've got, in my opinion, you've, you've got to give Barry and Arn better opponents than this. And actually you and I talked about perhaps rebooking this, this card as the show goes on. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective as well, I hadn't seen too much of the Renegade Warriors, the Youngbloods, prior to this. And obviously, as we said before, I tried not to look too much at the Observer before watching the event just to kind of get my, you know, get my bearings straight and kind of get my perspective on it. When it comes to the flow of a match and crowd reaction, I think that this was probably the best match on the show, for me at least. The Renegade Warriors seemed to be getting, like, quite a bit of crowd support through them the entire match. The volume kind of seemed like it was pretty dynamic. It was just going up and up and up. There weren't a lot of dips for me in terms of like rest spots or anything like that. I love the intricacies of Barry Windham as well. Kind of like when he was going for the test of strength with one of the Youngbloods and he was kind of twisting his fingertips and kind of these little things. And then right at the very end, he goes and quickly jabs one of them in the neck. Yes. I thought that was fantastic. So <laughs> it's just the, it's the little things that I kind of noticed. But that and at this time, obviously, Arn was coming back from a shoulder injury at this time, correct? Yes. He looked like he was in the best shape that I've ever seen him from the Tully run, from the Four Horsemen run prior. I don't know if he maintains the shape as well when it comes to the Dangerous Alliance stuff, but Arn looked great. He was very trim and very cut. I agree. And Arnie Arn's one of those guys I wish they had done more, like done more with. I wish they had given him a run with the with the uh United States title. I think, you know, as a matter of fact, right around this time, they were putting the TV title back on him. So maybe that maybe that was a reason why the team with Barry just kinda kind of fizzled out. But I thought it was a good match as well. I agree with you. Yeah, awesome. All right. Next, we have clips of Stan Hansen versus Big Van Vader from Japan. And Stan Hansen makes it out to do an interview on this show. I do not like this version of Stan Hansen. I've said it on the show where he's chewing tobacco and he's just a slob and tobacco juice is running over his chest. I like the more sadistic, heelish Stan Hansen that, that was around before his 1985 AWA run. And you know what? I have to maybe look that up as well, because when I think of Stan Hansen, this is kind of the image that projects to me as a fan as well when it comes to his image in the United States. So that's all I kind of saw him as, just kind of like this dipping guy and, you know, just uh, like you said, slobbish in a way. Slovenly would be another way to put it. But uh, yeah, I'll have to definitely check out some earlier Stan Hansen stuff as well, because this is what I thought was kind of prototypical Stan Hansen. You know what? I'll put it in a better way. Give me the Japan Stan Hansen where he's not doing that nonsense. Mm. All right. So we've got the Hansen Vader match coming up on the pay-per-view. And I want to say this too about Stan Hansen. Like, I think if they had brought him in or not, not brought him in, but if they brought him in regularly and turned him babyface, I think he would have been huge. And, WCW, one thing, even going back to the JCP era, a lot of the wrong guys were heels and a lot of the wrong guys were baby faces. I mean, I watched the Stan Hansen versus Lex Luger match from Halloween Havoc, where Hansen was the heel, Luger was the baby face. I'm like, how 
how is anyone going to cheer for this pretty boy Luger against a guy like Stan Hansen? To me, it made no sense. And again, not to uh, beat a drum, I will take your word for it because unfortunately I have really nothing to add in that respect. That's quite all <laughs> I right. I hear that, and I've heard that the uh, Hansen and Luger stuff from a couple months prior, I, I heard that series kind of went well, I guess, from maybe Lex's perspective. I think it showed Lex, you know, working a little bit more than just this muscle-headed freak. But you know what? I'll just take your word for it, and I defer to you, kind sir. All right. Flying Brian. And again, with that name thing, it's okay to call him Flying Brian Pillman, but they lost the last name against Buddy Lee Parker. It's a squash match on primetime. Brian Pillman had been around for about two years by this point. It really felt like they were just killing time here. It felt like it felt like filler. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know what? Um, from what I've seen of them as well, I actually really liked Buddy Lee Parker in the State Patrol with James Earl Wright. But I just felt like with him as the opponent, I just felt like it just really didn't work as a squash. I noticed that Pillman got probably the second biggest pops next to Sting on the night. And Dusty was putting him over pretty strong on commentary as well. He was. Um, you know, Pillman at this point, like I, I am a big Brian Pillman fan. Don't get me wrong. He'd been there for two years. He was getting a little bit stale. Jace, you're not going to know this, but like in 19, in the beginning of 1991, it was time for that, for, for that Brian Pillman hair to go. He looked like a mall cop from 1988 with that. That, that, that style was completely out by that point. Yeah. Those trunks, I never thought were a good idea. Yes. He played for the Cincinnati Bengals. Allegedly. I think he made their, their, practice squad one year that doesn't mean you have to wear a cincinnati bengal trunks for the rest of your career and i you know just that look was really stale there was a lot that they could do with pillman but i thought they needed to freshen them up for sure um for me i kind of liked the orange trunks um just because during this time that's kind of what i see brian pillman as but i yeah. agree with the hair speaking of the hair as well because i haven't seen a lot of original tapes Pillman and Zayt came out to Rocket by Def Leppard, correct? Yes. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Like, it was Def Leppard-ish hair. <laughs> that's a really <laughs> good point. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty much And you know what? To be brutally honest, I know you like Def Leppard. I hate Def Leppard. I'm I never okay with got Def Leppard. I, I, I never got it. To me, when it comes to vocals, I couldn't understand a word that the guy was saying. Like, it. Because it was kind of like this, like, drawl out. Kind of, it sounded like somebody was punching me in the stomach and I was trying to sing. And <laughs> the vocals were triple tracked. It just sounded like a mess. I never got Def Leppard. I don't understand it. That's all I got to say. When I was a senior in high school, Def Leppard exploded. Like, Pyromania. Yeah. Like, February, March of 1983. And my girlfriend at the time had no problem. Just like, I would leave you for dead with for 10 minutes with Joe Clark. Just so you know. <laughs> Real confidence builder. But anyway. Yeah. So I've Great got a person. reason not to like him, but I'm okay with him. All right. And last observation on this match. The crowd is getting tired. You can tell. It's been two hours into it. And the crowd's starting to, you know, simmer down a lot, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next, I have to tell you guys, 30 years ago, I failed all of you. I failed all of you. They had a phone number you could call to enlist in the WCW official fan club. This was a new thing that they were launching the next day, and I did not prank phone call them every day and record it and share it with you guys. I just laughed it off and didn't think of it. I I'm ashamed, Jace. I'm ashamed of you too, but I, I don't really know. What else to say. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say in that regard. Uh, you, you just get to call and like get info. You're, you're putting out a number for wrestling fans to call to get information on a fan club. I, I forgot all about it. Now, next up is the Missy Hyatt versus Polly Dangerously arm wrestling contest, and you know not to harp on this, Rhubarb Jones comes out. He gets a really good response from the Gainesville, Georgia crowd. I mean, they wow, I was surprised. Now, not that I was expecting anything bad, just, you know, they love this guy. And then he just comes out and he's like, hey, to the troops out there, 
God bless you. We're praying for you. Like, that's all we needed. Thank you, Rhubarb. That was great. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Uh, Funny enough, I actually really like Rhubarb Jones. I've seen some stuff of his announcing on the WTBS show in, you know, 1990. I don't feel like Rhubarb Jones gets kind of talked about quite a bit when it comes to his ring announcing duties. No, I, I really like him. I agree. I thought he did a really good job. And one, you know, one of the best ways to be a, a great ring announcer, you know, it's almost like being an umpire in baseball. If you're good at it, nobody notices. And he was really good. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have the Missy Hyatt versus Pauly Dangerously arm wrestling contest. There, there's only one way this was ever going to go, and I could have told you that coming into that night. Pauly comes in with a champion-branded sweatshirt that was still all the rage in 1991. Like I said, it was obvious what was going to happen. For those unaware, they do it. Missy comes in wearing a jacket. They do some stalling. She takes off the jacket. She's got a low-cut top. Paulie loses his mind and she just puts his arm down. There's no other way to do it, right, Jace? I completely agree. It was it was what it was. It was funny. It was a good spot. Yeah, you couldn't really have done it any other way. Yeah, and you know, once again, Missy, if you're listening, thanks for jumping up and down, sharing the joy with us after you pinned Paulie. I personally, I, and this was in the Observer, but I thought I thought it independently watching. I thought both Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross got a little carried away with the innuendo afterwards. You know, you get in one quick line and then leave it alone. I, I must have missed it. Can you can you indulge me on it? Uh, let me see. I'm trying to remember exactly what Dusty said, but like Jim Ross was saying, you know, oh, Paul E. must have been thinking about a rerun of Twin Peaks. And I'm like, okay, guys, <laughs> oh, yes, scale yes, it down yes. a little bit. Yes. All right. And, you know, and someone made a good point, or Dave made a good point in The Observer. It's like, look, you know, if you're going to be low rent entertainment like that you prepared to have a low rent audience and that's not what you wanted in 1991 anymore i mean these guys were on national cable they were trying to be a national company you know you, you just can't be i don't want to say in the gutter all the time that's overstating it but you, you don't want i mean wwf didn't do stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah and from what i can recall yeah i i completely agree all right Next up, we have a quick clip from after the Ric Flair winning the NWA title back. He was at LT, Lawrence Taylor's sports bar. For those unaware, Lawrence Taylor was a legendary football player for the New York Giants. And it just killed me because you see Ric Flair and you see Mike Rotunda, who I think has departed by this point. What's your name? The Alexandra York, a couple of other people. Kevin Sullivan was there. And it's like, I was supposed to be there. Huh? Woman was there as well. I know that yeah, woman was. obviously wasn't on WCW TV, but yeah, just obviously given her affiliation with Kevin Sullivan at the time, I just found it was interesting that she was on camera. That's a good point, actually. And you know what? They really they didn't acknowledge her with Kevin Sullivan and WCW, but eh, who knows? But like, I mean, for those unaware, I was supposed to go to that show in the in New Jersey Meadowlands, January eleventh, uh, nineteen ninety one, and we had twenty or twenty two inches of snow. And there was just no way I could make a 200-mile trip to New Jersey. But I see that clip, and I'm like, I'm supposed to be there. Try living in Canada. That's nothing for me. <laughs> Winnipeg, is, Winnipeg, especially, Winnipeg especially. And, you know, people make jokes about Winterpeg. And, you know, it is scientifically proven that, you know, from the, year, from the months of December through March is probably one of the coldest places on the planet, rivaling that of the surface of Mars. <laughs> I will admit that this winter is probably one of the best winters that we've ever had. It's maybe the equivalent of, ooh, like 50 degrees. Wow. So it's not bad. There's not a lot of snow on the ground. So I'm happy. But this is also a province where there is never a snow day when it comes to school. Because it is assumed that no matter how bad it's snowing, the plows are going to be out. The buses are going to be running you're going to be getting to school unless you live out in the country. All right. A couple of things. When I first moved from Jackson Heights to North Attleboro, I was totally taken aback because there was no such thing as the school closing for snow in New York because everyone walked to school. And I was amazed when I get to this place and it's like, if we get some snow, the schools are closed. So that was kind of cool, except you have to make them up. But secondly, 
Chase, if I'm understanding Winnipeg right, like, don't you guys only not only get like really bad winters and blizzards and stuff, but you also get, do you also get tornadoes out there? Funny enough, there was a little bit of tornado activity the last year and a bit, but because we're on the prairies as well, it's so rare to kind of see that stuff. But okay. in my lifetime, I've never really seen a major tornado damage. But I will admit that in the last summer, uh, the last two years, there have been a has been a tornado touchdown at one point. But it's incredibly rare in the prairies. Okay, all right. For, for some reason, I'm probably thinking of the wrong city because I would say that I say things like, "Okay, you know, we get really bad winters up here." And by the way, this winter has been nothing. But at least we don't get hurricanes and tornadoes. So I'll just live with my snow shovel. Anyway, <laughs> next up, the you know, one more thing. They are advertising their magazine, Wrestling Wrap-Up. And they say it's half off the cover price, but it's not available in stores. So that kind of threw me for a loop. But why? And you're, I'm asking this you know, rhetorically. I, I don't expect you to know the answer. I don't know the answer. But why would they not have this available in stores so that when people walk into a place where magazines are sold, which were were a lot of places back then, you're not seeing Lex Luger sting the Steiners Ric Flair. I mean, it's it's, it's an opportunity to to make yourself bigger, and it it felt like they're not trying. Mm -hmm. I agree. But for me as well, given, you know, my age, um, when it comes to the wrestling magazines, I I didn't really see a lot of wrestling magazines in stores except for – you know, WWE magazine and, you know, the mid to mid to late 2000s, which is nothing compared to the actual plethora of magazines at that time. But was the WWF magazine in stores as well? Or was it just WC? There was no wrestling magazine when it comes to like a local um, big chain place like Walmart or something like that. Oh, no. WWF had their magazines out in 1991. The after magazines were available in, you know, in regular stores in 1991. That's why, you know, I thought it made no sense for WCW not to put itself out there a little bit more. And like I said, maybe there was a reason for it, but I can't imagine what that that threw, that just threw me for a little bit, a little bit of a loop. Mm -hmm. All right, next up. And this is the match. I have a lot to say about Ric Flair versus Scott Steiner for the NWA championship coming into this match, you know, with sting, having tried and not succeeded as WCW or NWA champion, I was pounding the table for Scott Steiner. I thought almost like, you know, good Scott Steiner is your future. You know, he's good looking enough for the girls. He's, you know, not a pretty boy. So the guys are going to like, the guys are going to like him because of his physique, because of his athleticism. I was like, WCW, this is your future. This is the guy you need to eventually, probably meaning by the end of that calendar year, put the NWA championship on. That's what I was saying coming into this match. Right now, the match starts. Ric Flair comes out with five models, which I think is very, very dumb because everyone knows what it is. It doesn't get him over more as a heel. It doesn't make him look like a cool baby face. It's just something they do for the sake of doing. Any thoughts on that, Jace? I know it's, you know, part of Flair's gimmick and everything. And funny enough, I noticed that the first three women that came out were on the camera earlier on the night from the crowd. So I didn't know if this was a thing where Flair would just kind of take women from the crowd and (laughs) have them come out with him in his entrance. But uh, yeah, I I agree with you. It just it was just kind of strange. I bet they were in the crowd and the cameraman and the producer were just not in on it. That's right. I forgot about that. All right. Rick Flair was going through a major hair crisis in 1990. I think we've all seen the pictures of him with a slicked back ponytail where he looks like George Washington, only with a bigger nose. I think he was just tr- tired of, of, of his style. So he got it cut like Phil Donahue. And it was it was horrible. Not only did it look bad on him in general, but it's like it wasn't a Ric Flair look. I know we're talking about hair, Jace, but any thoughts from you on that? You know what? This is going to be really divisive. I actually really like the Spartacus haircut. Ah. <laughs> I know that's kind of like the thing. You know what? It's kind of like a business casual kind of thing. Maybe obviously not on Ric Flair because of, you know, the pomp and circumstance. But that was kind of like a 90s haircut. 
in my honest opinion. Like it was kind of like the, I don't want to say young professional, but it just, it looked, I don't know, it just looked kind of professional. I, I personally liked it. And I know that Flair had that haircut as well. And later on in the nineties, I think in 97 or 98, but uh, it got him out of the, you know, eighties big hair ploof that, you know, Ric Flair was used to. And I didn't mind the Spartacus cut. Ah, well, by, by the end of the year, he was, he was back to his 1980s Ric Flair look, which I guess is uh, just another part of the crisis. But anyway, before the match, El Gigante is interviewed, uh, interviewed, excuse me, introduced, and he's, he is now part of WCW. He is legit seven foot seven, which is simply incredible. He comes in. Of course, they do the thing where he shakes Scott Steiner's hand, shakes Rick Steiner's hand, and Ric Flair refuses to shake hands. Ric Flair, the top of Ric Flair's head, came up to the middle of this guy's sternum. That's how much he towered over Ric Flair. And when I first saw this, I thought, you know, WCW really might have something here. Because if he is big and athletic, and if he's seven foot seven, and he's athletic enough to play professional basketball. Well, they've got something here, but there's one problem. I realized this after like years later, the reality was he wasn't athletic enough to play basketball. He was just out there surviving because he's seven foot seven and he couldn't do anything. And obviously we saw as time went on that this was not the most athletic guy around. Yeah, and from what I've been able to gather as well, I know that uh, they tried him out, obviously, in uh, main events. Not necessarily main events, but in tag matches. But, you know, they tried to feature him as an attraction, but he was just too... I felt he was too big. Like, that's the thing. He was just too big of a guy. Yeah, he might have been there, true. you know? I mean, you look at him, and he, he is a really big guy. It looked like he'd been hitting the weights. And just physically, Flair looked like a midget next to him. I mean, it was, you know, you're right. He might have been too big. Yeah. And then then again, we have the injuries. The guy was a severe diabetic. I mean, he passed away very young. And there, and like I said, there was the genuine lack of athleticism. And I, I also thought, you know, they, they costumed him wrong. And calling him El Gigante, again, you know, not to harp on this, if they had called him El Gigante, Jorge Gonzalez, I think it would have been better. Anything is better than what happened when he went to the WWF in a bodysuit and called him oh, Jorge Gonzalez. So, yeah, there's not much else brutal. I can say. That was absolutely brutal. And then Giant Gonzalez, with, you know, the health problems were getting worse. And with that gimmick, I mean, we might have found the, the worst wrestler of all time. Jim Ross, during commentary, says that Scott Steiner was a two-time All-American wrestler at Michigan. And I got curious. It, it is now, you know, it's not 1991 anymore. We can look stuff up. He was not a two-time All-American. But legitimately, this is according to the Uni- University of Michigan's website, he was a three-time Big Ten runner-up in wrestling from 1980. He, he went to college 1983 through 86. So that means. As a sophomore, this guy placed second in the Big Ten in whatever weight division he was. That's incredible. Three times, I mean, you know, second place, I know that stinks he didn't win first place, but finishing second place three times, that's amazing. That's really a big feat. And, you know, I'm not as apt to collegiate wrestling stuff or collegiate sports as general, but to be a runner-up in anything of that high of a caliber or even a winner in that high of a caliber is amazing. So yeah, I'm not taking anything away from it at all. No, I mean, and the big 10 was a, a wrestling conference. That means that out of all the guys in your weight scale at Michigan, Michigan state, Iowa, Ohio state, Wisconsin, et cetera, you're the second best guy. Like you're really good. Uh, sure. I, I completely <laughs> agree with you. That's, I think that's really interesting. So yeah, I, uh, not much else I can say, but I'll have to learn more about it. Well, it, it was, I guess my point is it was almost like Jim Ross makes something up where the truth might've been a little bit better, but that's just not how pro wrestling goes. What were your thoughts on this match, Jace? It looked better on paper. You know, I know that given the Steiners, you know, rise to prominence at this time as well, 
Scott was obviously known for his high moves. He was known for the Frankensteiner. He was known for, you know, putting on that extra flair, no pun intended, in the match. Mm -hmm. But to me, and I know Ric Flair gets a lot of criticisms about his match and kind of having the match his way. But as it's going to be indicated in the finish as well, the match, just it just didn't work. And that's kind of what I thought as well. And again, my opinion is going to be different from yours. It's going to be different from a lot of people's. I'm coming at this from a first-time perspective. I think it demonstrated to the fans that Scott Steiner can't work psychologically, I guess, when it comes to the match. And it was just kind of a flare match all the way. Pardon if I'm off on my timelines, but I know that Scott Steiner and Ric Flair have had issues later on in the decade as well, in late 90s, early 2000s in WCW. And doesn't Scott cite this match as kind of Flair sandbagging him a little bit and kind of, you know, derailing his push potentially? The word sandbagging is in my notes, and allegedly that's where all of the bad blood between Ric Flair and Scott Steiner started. Uh, and and Scott has made that allegation that Ric Flair sandbagged him in this in this match. Having watched the match twice in the past forty eight hours, I'm I'm telling you right now, Scott is full of the brown stuff. That that did not happen. Okay. I mean, you know, just I'll, I mean, have, to, I'll, I, I'll have to watch it again. But yeah, just just from and I'm not necessarily. I was trying not to let that influence me in terms of this, but. Even when it comes to just a little bit of things that I noticed, Flair jumping into Scott and taking the, you know, bump over the top rope. I don't know if Flair mistimed it or maybe it was just his trajectory if he jumped early, but kind of getting over and maybe it was, you know, Scott's muscles couldn't get him over the rope as well. But that was one instance of kind of some timing being off in the match as well that maybe could have thought about the sandbagging aspect. But I don't think it was anything super egregious, but again, this was a, a flair match. You know, it was just kind of the same stuff. And I just think that Scott didn't necessarily shine as much as the fans would have wanted him to because they all wanted to see him hit a Frankensteiner. But obviously, given Flair's back issues as well, Flair probably wouldn't want to take a lot of hot moves. I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, that, that's a possibility, too. But, I mean, I, I looked at this match, and I had such high hopes for this match coming in. I really thought we were going to see a four-star, maybe even higher than that match, and too. it just wasn't. You, you, put it, you put it the best way. It just didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what? I went in, you know, doe-eyed and interested to see you because, you know, obviously— the Steiners at this time, and as they would grow in prominence in, you know, 92, 93 with their work in Japan and their work in WCW, is that they were the preeminent working tag team. And, you know, everybody wanted to see Scott just ruffle up flair a little bit, and it just didn't happen. No, it didn't. And, you know, it. and here's the thing, like, after these events around this time, you know, it'd be 10, 30, 11 o'clock, whatever at night, my phone would start ringing. People wanting to know, you know, how I felt about the show. This was, you know, the phone was Facebook back in 1991. And I just did an immediate turn on Scott Steiner. I mean, he, and by the way, it wasn't, you know, Scott thinks Rick is, was sandbagging him. Okay. Scott was completely blown up by the end of that match. Yes, and, absolutely. You know, how's that on Rick? <laughs> yeah, no, I, there's not much else that you can say with that, but yes, as you mentioned that as well. The finish was, again, I don't know if it was a timing thing. I didn't know if it was just, it's obviously not a dusty finish because there's no messery in any stretch of the imagination when it comes to a title. But it was just such a bleh finish when it came to the time limit draw, especially when it came to Flair kind of selling the reversal, the figure four leg lock, and then going to the outside and spilling over. And Scott's just kind of standing around in the ring gassed. Like, yeah. If he had a little more fire, he I would have gone out there, gotten on Flair a little more, got him back in the ring, got some more moves, continued the sequence to go to the finish of the match, but he just stood around looking like a goof. And the announcers, both Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross, were like, you know, Scott, time's a wasting. You know, this match is almost over. You got to get after him. And it looked like Scott Absolutely. just needed the rest. Yeah, I completely agree. 
All right. And the match went to a time limit draw. Um, it seemed like it didn't have a built-in time limit coming in. It was just like, okay, when, when we run out of time, that's it. And that's what it came to. The match was given, what, like 20, 25 minutes. And inside that period, I went from NWA, this is your next guy, to I don't know about this guy long term. And I, someone mentioned to me, they were like, do you think they gave the match too much time, uh, enough time? That was a worry coming in. Sometimes the Clash of the Champions matches did not get enough time. I thought this match, I mean, coming in 20, 25 minutes sounds good, but Scott didn't have 20, 25 minutes in him. Like In terms of not only him not being blown up, but not having enough to do during the course of the match. I agree. This probably, in hindsight, probably should have been like a 12 to 15 minute match. And that's kind of all that I see it as. I felt that there were just a lot of low spots in the match and most of it was partial psychology partially i felt that you know rick from the outside getting flair's leg and hands off the ropes that i felt that that kind of hindered it because it happened so frequently in the match that it kind of diminished you know scott's ability to you know position himself in the ring and to kind of have him in control of the match that oh your brother's just gonna you know, constantly bail you out in front of the referee. So, yeah, uh, you know, this should have been shorter. And kind of like I alluded to earlier, it just didn't work and it looked better on paper. You know, and I agree with you as far as Rick goes. If he had done it once, it would have been fine. It would have given him a purpose to be out there. But you're right. It, it happened too many times where Rick did it like had five to bail. Times. Yeah, it was like, you know, my big brother needs to bail me out. Yeah. And, you know, and that's another thing about about Scott. And I'm I'm getting a little bit ahead here. He seemed a little too comfortable in that little brother role. Like a year later, Bill Watts was the booker and he wanted to turn Scott Steiner. As a matter of fact, they, they filmed the term, but it never went anywhere where Scott turned heel and won the TV title. And he was going to have a run with that. And Scott didn't want to do it. He wanted to remain a baby face. He wanted to remain in the tag team. And it's like, you know, is that's not the money role in pro wrestling. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had, I had no idea about that at all. And, you know, loyalty is, is, you know, it's a commendable asset to have, but when it comes to something like the professional wrestling industry, you gotta, gotta take what you can get. And that's the thing, you know, if they had given Scott, a big singles push that doesn't preclude Rick from also getting a big singles push and putting them together as a, you know, as not just another tag team. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it seems kind of silly once, you know, when you had filled me in on that as well, I, I don't know why he wouldn't have taken that opportunity. I thought that would have been really interesting to see a heel Scott Steiner. Yeah. it, It got, when he finally did it in 1998, it was kind of interesting and also very weird, but, I mean, what can I say? He left six six years on the table as just another tag team wrestler. I'm like, yeah, he did well in WCW. He eventually did well in the WWF, but I thought he should have been higher up in the card. But then again, I'm I'm sitting there saying, well, he wasn't ready during this match. I mean, and someone said to me, you know, afterward on the phone, they're like, oh, you know, a problem with Scott is he's been working almost exclusively tag team matches throughout his career. Maybe they just needed to get him rolling as a single. I mean, talking about me turning on the guy coming into the match. I'm like, okay, he's only 28 years old. He is so young. You can get a lot out of this guy. Then afterward, I'm like, well, he turns 30 next year. When is he going to be ready? <laughs> Maybe they could have brought great Wojo in again and just, Ooh. you know, have him beat the great Wojo 10,000 times to get him over. <laughs> uh, anyway, so. I mean, the the matches, what did you think of the show overall, Jace? I mean, give it a give it a grade without being influenced by anything that I had seen from the Observer poll, which I read afterwards. So I am aware of, you know, what the general populace and the readers thought of it before knowing of those numbers. I probably would have given. Am I giving it a letter grade or am I giving it a number grade? Uh, I'll tell you what, you can give it a thumbs up, thumbs in the middle or thumbs down, because that's what the Observer did. Hmm, that's really tough because there there were some good spots. Like I said, um, I thought that the 
Barry and Arn and the uh, Renegade Warriors match was probably the best match on the show in terms of general flow and everything. When it came to the pacing of the show in general, I'd probably give it a thumbs down. Obviously not as bad as the previous Clash, and not necessarily in terms of bad in terms of the matches that they had, but I know that some of the big blunders on the Clash 13 was, you know, Sid versus the Night Stalker, which was like one of the worst matches of the year, yep. et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't necessarily say that there were any major stinkers when it came to, you know, work rate and quality. Well, I mean, barring the Ranger Ross match where he jumped over the top rope, completely missed the scissor kick, and yes. it just got over like a fart in church. And speaking of that, by the way, because I forgot to mention it, I like Fidel Sierra, Dave Sierra. What is Cuban about a guy in a black mask and a black jumpsuit with lightning bolts on the side? You could have <laughs> called him like Sluggo McDarkside. And what is Cuban about El Cubano? I don't like. Uh, anyway, I, I don't get it. Anyways, yeah, I'd, I'd probably give the show a thumbs down. To be brutally honest, again, it just it didn't have the spark to kind of boost it to a thumbs in the middle for me. You know, then again, when it comes to thumbs up, thumbs middle, thumbs down. If I gave it a letter grade, I'd probably give it like a C. But then again, to me, C isn't necessarily indicative of a thumbs in the middle. So, right, yeah, I'd probably give it a thumbs down. Okay, I mean, Jace, you're you're young and you're Canadian. You don't understand the dynamic of. Don't hold the... it against me. <laughs> no, I I think it's a good thing. Both of those things that you know Americans need their nationalistic baby face like Ranger Ross against an evil foreign menace like El Cubano. Like we don't, we didn't have a a good relationship at all with Cuba in 1991. So you just throw a mask on the guy and call him El Cubano and we all hate him because he's Cuban. That's, that's how nuts we are down here. (laughs) For sure. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to allude to anything. You said it, not me, but uh, (laughs) again, like I said, when it comes to the historical perspective and obviously the, um, country perspectives that we have as well it's it's just it's different so thank you for bringing that point to me as well no we're the ones that need to chant usa usa at wrestling shows especially in the late 80s and early 90s i would give this match I, i would give the show a thumbs in the middle i didn't think it was bad enough for a thumbs down but it was an extremely disappointing show at the time. I had such high hopes for the show in general. I mean, but, you know, especially for Ric Flair versus Scott Steiner, as I had said, Dusty and the, you know, I wrote this before I read The Observer. I said Dusty was a negative. I mean, I, I understand. Look, he just got done being a pro wrestler 11 days ago. But And he's transitioning into his new role where he's not a wrestler. He's the booker. He's behind the scenes. He's not a wrestler anymore. He's, he does commentary sometimes. But if he's going to use himself like that, he's got to learn that, look, the announcer's not supposed to go out there and get himself over. Those days have passed him by, at least in theory. And if he's going to be the booker, he's got to understand the role of an announcer and if he doesn't like being in that role, don't be an announcer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, given the eventual uh, foreshadowing that Dusty would have and, you know, noting about bicycles being left around the arena and he, he's got a bicycle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think that Dusty was going to be that bad this early in terms of him, you know, constantly putting himself over on commentary as it would be in, you know, 1996. But, hey, there's a lot I got to learn. so. <laughs> just going to keep watching and uh, keep my uh, ears open and my mouth shut. All right. Now, I I had asked Jace, I said, I asked him, if you could rebook this card, what might it look like? I tried doing a little bit of cross-referencing on the History of WWE website as well, just to kind of see who was still in WCW around, you know, the end of 1990, early 1991. I did and the I same. I didn't want to. And I didn't want to necessarily repeat anything, but when it came to putting kind of upper middle card guys on the show, I really struggled to kind of find matchups in terms of what I wanted to rebook. When it comes to just rebooking the show in general of what I could take in, take out and interchange, I probably would have cut the Ranger Ross match, but that's just me. And again, I'm trying to understand, you know, the the, it was the pander match to me, but I understand that it has its place. When it came to Pillman and Buddy Lee Parker, I probably would have put maybe Pillman with 
I don't know if he was still in there or if he was, you know, gone by this point, but Buddy Landell and Pillman had a really good match at the, at the previous clash. And I thought that that would have been a really good match to have as well. Either that, or maybe like Brad Armstrong or, or some kind of capacity. But then again, you know, you want to showcase Pillman a little more and you don't want to have a face versus face match. So I really couldn't find any competent heels to put in that, but maybe I would have done Buddy Landell versus Brian Pillman again, but I really couldn't figure out any other major cuts to make to this show in terms of changing people out. What do you think, John? Well, you know, I said that as I watched the show, I was like, okay, this match shouldn't be here. This match shouldn't be here. And then when it came time for me to, okay, well, what would you have done at the end of the day? I would not have changed much. I would have gone with Ric Flair versus Scott Steiner. I would have gone with Sting and Luger against Doom, especially knowing that Doom is about to split up. So you get Sting and Luger, you know, their win against an established team. Barry Windham and Arn Anderson, I would not have had them out there against the Renegade Warriors. My first choice would have been to put them in against the tag team of Rick Steiner and Brian Pillman. Yeah, and they they have the War Games match coming up. Yes. All four of them are going to be part of that. So run an angle based based on that. Plus, you're going to yeah, get a good I, I match don't... out of those guys. Absolutely. And that completely makes sense. And I think that's going to, I'm going to put a bookmark in that as well, because there is something maybe potentially after our coverage that you were mentioning to me off the air as well, when it comes to some questions that I had for you as well, ah, I'm going to put that as well. So, all right. If I couldn't do that for whatever reason, and theoretically, if I'm the booker, I can do whatever I want. I, instead of having the young bloods, I would have had Brad, the team of Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner, and yeah. I would have said to Brad and Tim, you know, okay, this is going to go 20 minutes and you guys are going to show how good you really can be because they, they, mm-hmm. both of them were excellent wrestlers. They were. And I actually never thought of that. I do know, obviously, that Horner was in because he'd worked the previous clashes, mass star blazer. Yeah. And again, when it comes to my perception of who's in, who's out at certain times when it comes to territories. It's a bit suspect because I'm not as apt as remembering that kind of information as most other people are, because, again, most of the stuff is still new to me. And also, too, WCW kind of fluxed in and out. I know that, you know, Motor City Madman came in, Big Cat, JW Storm, I think, had left around this time. And I know that they were kind of pushing, you know, him and Jeff Warner for a little bit, Maximum Overdrive. So if JW Storm was still around, I maybe would have had him in a spot on the show. But again, that's a really good choice to have, you know. Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Horner on the match as well. I had completely forgotten about JW Storm. I, I, I had not thought of that name in I don't know how many years. I wish and, I could have forgotten more about Magnum Force than I could have JW Storm. <laughs> Magnum Force. <laughs> We're naming wrestling teams after Dirty Harry movies. And if I couldn't have Pillman in, in, in a tag team against Barry Windham and Arn Anderson, Rip Rogers was an unbelievably good worker. I mean, you could have at least had a good match. I know the Pillman match was kind of short, but you could have at least had a really good match with Rogers in there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about Rip Rogers at that time. That would have been actually really interesting. Uh, yeah, Rip Rogers, I've said this on the show before, in early 1991, every week he was having the best TV match of the week. I would watch, you know, all of the WWF, all of the WCW, and at the end of the day, What was the best match this weekend? It was Rip Rogers' match. He was that good. Stan Hansen's in the building. Why not have him wrestle? Even do a quick squash the way they did with Sid. Uh, Maybe it could have been because of his contract. Maybe, you know, maybe... uh, Was he in in New Japan or All Japan? I'm sorry if I... If it's sacrilegious of me to ask. (laughs) No, he was in All Japan. That's okay. Not everyone's a Japan fan. That's okay. I do want to get more into Japan, so please, any recommendations out there? I know that I put a, a, a post in one of the threads on one of the Facebook pages about Akira Maeda. Thank you to everybody that had reached out and given me some video links. I really do appreciate it. But yeah, you know what? Japanese wrestling, not my forte. My sincerest apologies. Oh, overlord, John McCann. Hey, I knew nothing about Japanese wrestling until I started getting The Observer. And then it was it was hard for me to grow into... Because, you know, back then, all of the Japanese guys, you know, no one was dyeing their hair. So they they all had kind of the same hairstyle, more or less. 
the black trunks, the black boots. It's like, okay, I don't know who this guy is, so it's hard to get into him. But I learned eventually, and yeah, a lot of that's especially the the nineties all Japan stuff was really good. I, I do recommend that. Um, let Absolutely. me see. Hanson, I mean, I think he's allowed to wrestle for WCW. He's in the building. I would have asked him to do a squash. I mean, I think he could. He, I think he could do whatever he wanted in America when he wasn't in Japan. So I'm not sure. One other thing I would have done, and it shouldn't have been cost prohibitive to do this. They were pushing uh, a Japanese, an all Japan women's match on the upcoming pay per view. Why not fly two of the best girls in? Just to show them, show the American audience what they can do and make them want more and maybe make them more interested in purchasing this pay-per-view that's coming up in about three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I completely forgot that they did show a little bit of a snippet of all Japan women's footage in the show as well. So that completely slipped me by. And that's actually a really good point that you brought up. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I can't blame you for not remembering it because it was like 10 seconds of highlights that didn't mean anything. And, you know, it didn't make an impact on you. I don't think it made an impact on anybody. It was a slow motion cross body shot. So, yeah, didn't really make a lot of impact. I, I don't, there's not one person who's like, you know, I wasn't going to buy that pay-per-view. But now I, was, <laughs> they just intriguing. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to wrap up this show. Jace, you have some burning questions that you'd like to ask me. I do. Um, now that we're wrapping up the show, I'm trying to be cognizant of time and recording. Don't as worry well, about that. So, okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect. I had about two questions, and this is kind of coming from me and my perspective in terms of, you know, the fan of the 21st century. You have mentioned a lot of stuff about, you know, 1970s, 1980s WWF on the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Can you, John McAdam, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a big dissertation, but just some general points. Can you sell me on Bob Backlund as a wrestler? Because to me, Bob Backlund looks literally like he walks around in the ring with a giant diaper full of bricks. Oh. He literally walks around doing these weird arm poses like he's trying to crack a coconut with his back. And he, he looks like a goop. Can you can you <laughs> sell me on Bob Backlund as WWF champion or just Bob Backlund in general in the late 70s? I think I can. Bob, sometime around late 82, early 83, just kind of fell off a cliff. I mean, he he had some good matches after that. But his really good stuff was pre-1983. He came in, the first time I saw him was Christmas morning, 1976. He debuted on Channel 56 in Boston. And he he was had a, a collegiate background. His interviews were a little bit like Bruno Sammartino's in that, you know, it was the heels that did the outlandish interviews, the, you know, yelling and screaming with Fred Blassie and Lou Albano and whoever. Bob came across as a real athlete. He did, he did the so, same kind of interview as uh, Cal Ripken Jr. or Joe Montana. He was serious. He was focused. He, you know, very humble. You know, I'm going to go out there, Vince. I'm going to do my best. I know my opponent's really good. His matches were off and on, okay? If you gave Backlund the right opponent, he could have a really good match. He had a really good match. I'm talking matches that are available on video. He had a couple of dynamite matches with Adrian Adonis, a couple of great matches with Ken Patera. Let me see. The Pat Patterson matches were really good. I mean, I've mentioned this on the show before. He had great matches in Boston against Bob Orton Jr. and Ivan Koloff. But if if you did or he on WWE Network, there's a great match from 1979 against Greg Valentine. But sometimes Bob was just off on whatever night. I mean, I have seen some pretty bad Bob Backlund matches, too. But it was the WWF. It was not a work rate territory, to say the least. And, you know, the the fans just at, at least at first, at least at least the last first like five years, they really liked Bob. And bottom line, he was a success as champion. They made a lot of money with that guy in the main event. 
Yeah, uh, completely understandable. And thank you for you know mentioning all of that those matches that I could definitely check out as well. I've seen a little bit of uh, I think it was a Texas Death Match between him and uh, Don Morocco. I think in eighty one or nineteen eighty. That was November twenty three, nineteen eighty one. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a bad match. I saw a little bit of it on YouTube. I thought it was really cool. But yeah, like, you know, coming from me as a fan of the 90s, like I didn't mind the Mr. Backlund stuff because I thought it was kind of funny. But seeing him kind of bounce around in the ring and do those weird kind of arm movements and literally walk around like he looked like an alien that was trying to, like, ingratiate himself into society. Like he just had <laughs> these weird kind of mannerisms when he was walking around the ring before the match. So thank you for potentially selling me on, you know, looking more into Bob Backlund. And I know of the, you know, him crying over the belt and the belt being broken and, you know, the Karate Billy Graham kind of stuff. And during Snooka's peak in 82, 83, you know, Backlund kind of shaving his head and getting the singlet. He just, he looked just, I guess, like a shell of his former self. So I just figured I would toss that in there. And I think it's really good. The answers that you gave with regards to, you know, more of a, new fan rediscovering this kind of stuff and uh, trying to get into something that I've never really seen before. When Bob Backlund came back to the WWF in 1993, I mean, first of all, it was a toy. It was an unbelievable. It was a shock. I mean, wow. That version of Bob Backlund was absolutely awful. He was a baby face and there was no such thing as getting a good match out of him. And then when they turned him heel, I've had people tell me that his matches against Bret Hart at like the Survivor Series 94, I think it was, yeah. you know, they, they, they've been praised as good matches. I do not see it. I think those matches were absolutely horrible. I didn't like the whole Mr. Backlund thing. There was, there was some humor to it, but I mean, once the bell rang, I mean, Bob, I thought Bob was absolutely awful. During that era, I in '91 I went to New Jersey to see Bob Backlund versus Terry Funk, and Backlund was you know had just come out of retirement. And there are people in this world who will say there's no such thing as a bad Terry Funk match. Oh yes, there was when he was against 1991 Bob Backlund. Uh, it's disappointing. Yeah. And to me, and you saying that as well, you know, Bob Backlund just kind of being dropped out of nowhere in you know 1993. The only other comparison that I could think of, of, you know, a wrestler from, you know, 10 years prior or whatever, just coming back midstream is, (laughs) and I'm trying not to date myself because again, like I watched wrestling, you know, from mid 2000s to 2012 is kind of where I stopped watching WWE was Tatanka randomly coming back in like 2008, 2009 to the WWE, just randomly out of nowhere. And they gave him like a little bit of a, you know, mid card singles run. But to me, that was just, Oh, what? Like it just, it, it was just dropped in midstream. And that's really the only comparison I could think of, of Bob Backlund just kind of showing up in mid nineties, WWF. Maybe another one would have been Buddy Rogers coming back as a wrestler in the late seventies. Cause he completely fell off the map. He had been gone for, uh, I want to say over a decade. So I mean, outside of those three, I can't think of anyone else. Yeah. Neither can I. All right. Well, you, you had one more. I had one more. So I wanted to ask you, when it comes to things that could have been in wrestling, when it comes to, you know, phantom angles or things that were mapped out but didn't necessarily take shape, like you had alluded to before, the potential Scott Steiner heel turn, and I believe you said it was either U.S. or TV title potential push, what are some things that you think about quite a bit in terms of, oh, I really wish that would have gone through? What are what are some examples for you in wrestling? Because I have one that I think. I'll tell you what, give me yours and I'll think of mine. I think a lot about the Midnight Horsemen. If the Midnight Express ended up joining the Four Horsemen as initially stated, and I can see the picture of it in my head, and I'm going to detail this in as much detail as I can to try to paint the picture of the badassery that is going on within this noggin from (laughs) left to right. It is Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, all are dressed in black to varying degrees. Stan Lane on the left arms on his hips. He's wearing the glasses like Sylvester Stallone on the front poster of Cobra was kind of shiny aviators. 
He has the kind of fabulous ones, kind of stubble-esque kind of beard. He's wearing a vest, kind of like a black vest. Flair has his black and white Nature Boy robe like he did in the WWF. Bobby Eaton has the black trunks with kind of lightning bolts and stuff. And Arn Anderson is standing there badass with shades as well, but obviously not to the extent of aviators that Stan would have. Because, you know, gimmick infringement. You can't have two people wearing the same gimmick. But I think about the Midnight Horsemen so much. I was thinking about them the other day. I was thinking about the potential matches that they could have had in 1990 with the Steiners, Sting, and Pillman. What are your thoughts? And well, and in the middle of it, you've got Jim Cornette, who's one of the best, one of, if not the best manager in the history of the game. That was on the table at one point in it was. It was in, in 1990 that was on the table because the horsemen had been ravaged by injuries. Uh Arn was out, Ole was out, and there was talk that they were going to have Ric Flair, Barry Windham. And the four horsemen as the, and the Midnight Express as the new four horsemen with the idea that at some point the Midnight Express were going to turn on the horsemen. I think that would have been great. I don't think they should have ever done a turn at that point, but not even as something to get you through the Arn Ander- Anderson injuries. Like, I think that would have been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it seems so silly, but. Just like I said, it's so silly to the fact that I've been thinking about looking at a promo shot of them and planning it out in my head in such detail. (laughs) I thought it could have been total money at that time in 1990, especially all the trials and tribulations that the Midnight Express had gone through, through the George Scott bookings, through taking time off, to really having no opponents, to, you know, Heard wanting to push Jim Cornette out of a manager's position, keep him on commentary, and then Cornette would sell the contracts of the Midnight Express, and they would become the Four Horsemen. It sounds silly. I know history would have gone down a completely different trajectory path, but it is something that I think about quite a bit. Well, then, I mean, that's the thing about wrestling. I mean, it, it's supposed to it's supposed to get your imagination going, you know? Like, okay, not now it's like, okay, what could have happened? But back then, it's like, well, what could happen next, you know? It's the theater of the mind. Absolutely. Okay, I came up with four. Number one, and in in no particular order, first one, Terry Funk was supposed to come to the WWF in 1980. Terry Funk, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time. Terry Funk is like down on the next shelf with like Chris Jericho and Jerry Lawler and the Midnight Express. Terry Funk would have gotten over huge in the WWF in 1980. He was just coming off that fantastic run in Florida, and he would have been phenomenal. Second one I have, and this was supposed to happen in 1988. Now, think about everything that happened in Memphis in 1987 with Jerry Lawler getting his head shaved by Austin Idol, you know, with Tommy Rich doing the run in and all that. They were going to do a, uh, an angle where Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol, Austin was going to turn babyface and they were going to have an uneasy alliance with each other to combat the tag team of Eddie Gilbert and Kurt Henning and Kurt Henning had just lost the AWA title and the AWA just didn't have enough dates for him. And they were going to do something where, you know, he was going to work Memphis on Monday nights and occasionally some of the other towns. And that fell through that. That would have been fantastic. Uh, third one, which was going to happen was the midnight express versus Tully and Arn feud or, maybe even going further out against the four horsemen. It was a dream feud. It was something that we all wanted to see. It was, you know, the, the midnight express were finally turning baby face. And I mean, the matches would have been phenomenal. The interviews were phenomenal. And I'm, I'm sorry that got cut short. And the last one, they had put out a feud with Jerry Lawler against Roddy Piper in Georgia in 1982. The feud had started. Lawler had already started sending in promos on Roddy Piper, and Roddy Piper was responding, and Roddy Piper got fired, so the feud never got rolling. I think those are at least four things that we really missed out on that I wish that I wish had happened. Mm-hmm. Those all sound really cool. And you know what? I, I knew you know part and parcel about three out of the four that you had mentioned, but I didn't know about the uh, Austin Idol and Jerry Lawler teaming up against Kurt Henning and Eddie Gilbert. I thought that would have been really interesting to see. Yeah, that, that I mean, especially, you know, 
Lawler and Idol, I mean, all four guys were phenomenal, but I think all Lawler and Idol really could have pulled off that, you know, hey, Idol, you shaved my head. You, you put me out of action last year with a cheap shot. And, you know, now I'm supposed to trust you. You know, the Memphis was always good with that dynamic. Yeah, well, especially since the uh, Diamante Negro angle with Austin Idol and uh, Jerry oh. Lawler, where <laughs> numero uno, numero uno. Yeah, that would have been great. Uh, I, I before we go, have you ever seen the the real angle with that with the assassin and Dusty Rhodes? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, the the the, the Idol angle was just a bad spinoff of the the assassin versus Dusty Rhodes angle in Florida. Idol saw it on TV and wanted to duplicate it, and it just was nowhere near as good. I recommend that you, Jace, and everyone else seek that out. As a matter of fact, if, if anyone's listening and they can put it on YouTube uh, or pull it off YouTube onto the Facebook play- page, please do so. Jace, it has been a heck of a two weeks having you on. Thank you for being such a good guest. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really do appreciate it. This was really fun. Obviously, I had my trepidations. I didn't want to drag the show down too much. The ratings, they may go up just a little bit over the last two weeks. But you know what? I really do appreciate it. Like I said before, I appreciate any discourse about wrestling. I love to learn. I love to get new perspectives. I love giving my stupid perspectives into it. And, you know, either people agreeing with me or telling me, hey, it's wrong and this is why. And I don't cry in the corner and take it personally. But I really do appreciate being on. It's it's been a pleasure. I always like it when the guests say that they had fun because that's that's all this is supposed to be. This is exactly what I want it to be. Two guys having a good time talking old school wrestling and people having a good time listening to it. That said, I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does for Stick to Wrestling. And I want everyone to have a safe and happy week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.